The NBA playoffs are underway, and if one thing is clear, well, we're in for a good one. Welcome into Tab's Takes on WERW. I'm your host, Ryan Tab, with a lot of NBA talk, some NFL news, a lot of fun stuff to get into today. But I do want to start with that NBA playoff talk that has been the main story of sports over the past week or so. Right, we've had a couple of big things happen. Tiger Woods had one of the greatest comebacks we've ever seen in sports history. The storyline there, incredible. But outside of that, I think most of the focus has been on the NBA playoffs. Why? Because, well, the NBA is a great league. The playoffs are a lot of fun. There's a lot of great stars competing, a lot of great teams. And for the first time in quite some time, there have been upsets, and there's upsets on the horizon. Now, that in and of itself makes for a really, really exciting playoff. You get that a lot more in college than you do in the professional sports. And so sometimes it's nice to see something a little bit unpredictable happen, even if it is just in the first few rounds. So far, the best game of the playoffs, undoubtedly, has to be the Clippers' 31-point comeback against the Warriors. They came back. 31 down is the second biggest comeback in NBA history. It's the biggest playoff comeback in NBA history. Lou Williams goes for 32 points, 59% shooting. He really heated up during the rally, late in the rally. Fourth quarter, Lou Williams was unstoppable. He's a certified bucket getter. He's been doing it for years. He may go down as the best sixth man of all time, certainly from an offensive standpoint. And somehow teams just keep trading him away. He's bouncing around the league. And then everyone who ends up with him gets some sort of great value out of him. And why they choose to give him up, I don't know. It doesn't look like the Clippers will, especially after a performance like that. Clippers scored 85 points in the second half of that game. Second most for a half in NBA playoff history. They were setting and coming close to setting a lot of records offensively. This was, obviously, as indicated by those 85 points, a majority defensive collapse for the Warriors, right? But it was also a schematic collapse. I say that because the Warriors are a great team offense, and their talent individually is exceptional. But they're actually slightly below the middle of the pack as far as how they match up with other teams when you're talking about how well they execute in one-on-one situations. So yes, Kevin Durant is an excellent one-on-one basketball player. But because their offense is based around ball movement, off-ball screens, off-ball movement in particular, right? No team runs around like the Warriors do without the basketball. That's part of what makes them so difficult to defend. Right? You have Steph and Clay running around the court, and both of them with lightning quick releases. So if you're a half step off, you're beat. It's like you have to play cornerback. You're like an NFL corner on an NBA court. It's really difficult. So because their team, their team offense, is so much of a team game, when they get into these breakdowns where they have to play one-on-one, it's not that they're individually bad at it. It's that they don't just execute well as a team. It's not something they do often. There are teams that play a lot of iso ball. The Warriors aren't one of them, and so it's not that they're not talented in that regard. It's just something that's out of their element, and when it comes down to crunch time, they're not incredibly reliable in that regard. But that's exactly what happened to them when the Clippers were making their run. They're four stars, if you will, right? So earlier in the game, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins goes down with a leg injury. And at that point, it's unclear how long he's going to be out. It's pretty clear he's done for the game. 
It's a non-contact injury. Something in his thigh. That's what it looks like at the time. Hard to tell exactly what. Turns out it's going to be something that sidelines him for quite some time. So when you're talking about, and it's very unfortunate for a guy like him, someone who's dealt with injuries but is so talented, you, you hate to see that happen to somebody. Somebody who just spent a full year rehabbing from a devastating playoff-timed injury last year takes a small contract for a guy of his quality and his talent to go play with the Warriors immediately right back in the playoffs suffers another injury. It's unfortunate for the Warriors. It's unfortunate for DeMarcus Cousins as an individual. But this is still far and away the most talented basketball team in the NBA. So when you look at their four stars who were left in the game, and yes, I consider Draymond Green a star. Defensively, he is a stud. And offensively, he's only one season removed from playing the best ball of his career. Yes, he's been disappointing this year. Yes, he's not an all-star this year. But we're one, two seasons removed from his highest quality two-year stretch of his career. So we're not talking about calling Andre Iguodala an all-star, a guy who absolutely was early in his career, but is a veteran at this point. No, Draymond Green is still just barely removed from that stage in his career and could easily return if his game gets right again. So they broke down, and they were 4 of 19 at the end of this game. Durant, Thompson, Curry, Green were 4 of 19 down the stretch in this game, and a lot of it was due to those isolation possessions where they had to put the load on their back, they had to go get a bucket individually, and they were out of the offense that they usually run as a team. So it's not a reflection of that talent, right? I mentioned that already. It's not a reflection of the individual talent. Nobody's saying Kevin Durant is not a good one-on-one basketball player. Of course he is. He might be the best in the world. He might be one of the best to ever play. But it's just a product of not playing that style of basketball often in games, especially in playoff games, in fourth quarter situations where you've already blown a big lead. That's part of the collapse. Their stars struggled on the stretch. Their offense broke down. All of that, the boogie injury, the struggles down the stretch, the blown lead, already having lost home court advantage by splitting at home, all of that means nothing for this season. The Warriors will still probably win this game in six, even, even with boogie injured, and maybe even five. Right, they might just go and sweep the rest of the series. I don't think anybody would be shocked if the Clippers lost both at home. Nobody would have been shocked if this was a sweep to begin with. The Clippers steal one in Oracle at Golden State. I don't think the implications for the rest of this series or the rest of the season are particularly strong just because of this one win. This comeback has zero implication on this year's playoffs. But I still think this playoff comeback from the Clippers, this historic comeback, I still think it means more than people realize. And it has to do with the futures of the league. Not for anything we can really look at right now, but should Kevin Durant leave Golden State, right? Which seems more and more likely, I think, every day between the internal drama. I don't know if anybody saw the 60 Minutes interview that they did with the Warriors. And one of the clips was posted on Twitter. It went viral, might be a stretch, but it was getting sent around. And essentially, the guys who are in the interview are asked what kind of situation would it take to court them away from the Warriors or is their situation just too good 
playing in a great part of the country on the best team in the history of basketball from a talent perspective, is that too nice? Is that too bougie? Is that too comfortable, right? Is that too too much to enjoy to ever consider leaving? Well, everybody laughed. Andre Iguodala said, listen, I've been around. I'm a veteran in this league. I'm never leaving this situation. I've seen what it's like to have to win other places. It doesn't get better than this. Everyone laughed. That was the shared sentiment, except Clay Thompson looking side to side, very uncomfortable, and Kevin Durant staring blankly, equally as uncomfortable. Those are the two free agents this offseason. Those are the two guys who people think might leave Golden State. So less important to this situation is Clay Thompson, but for Kevin Durant, it seems more and more every day like he's going to leave. So particularly if he does leave and decides to go east, you've reopened the Western Conference for a new team to take over as the class of the conference. Now, people may say they're just going to go back to their 73-win selves as they were pre-Kevin Durant. But what people forget is that they sacrificed every, every ounce of their depth to get there, to get Kevin Durant. And so you can't just snap your fingers and undo that and get right back to where you were. This team... Without Kevin Durant, if Clay stays, let's say even, even if Clay stays, Curry, Thompson, Green, they might re-sign DeMarcus Cousins. His market value is low after these kinds of injuries. That team is very good, and they'll be a competitor in the West. But it's not over. It's not predetermined anymore, which is what we've been facing for a few years now. So if that's the case and the West is open, well, then the Clippers just made a statement, a huge statement, because legacy aside, right, we're not talking about do you want to be the little brother in L.A. from a historical standpoint. Legacy aside, today's NBA, what superstar wouldn't want to inherit, wouldn't want to inherit this team in a newly wide open conference, right? You'd be inheriting an exceptionally gritty, hardworking talented roster that's waiting, just waiting for a leader, for a superstar to come in and take them to the next level. I don't know what kind of superstar could look at the Clippers purely from a roster standpoint and the things they've done and say that they don't want to play there. Now, I'm not saying that's going to mean that they go out and land all the big free agents this offseason. I know there's a lot of speculation about Kawhi Leonard being a Clipper. And while that's entirely possible, I still think That legacy is a part of the equation, especially for guys who grew up where the Clippers were the laughingstock of the NBA, right? We're so quick to forget that it was just a few years ago this team made the playoffs for the first time in as long as I can remember. Growing up for me, the Los Angeles Clippers were the laughingstock of the NBA, That title transferred to other teams. It moved around the league. But the guys who are major free agents right now still grew up in that era of basketball. And I think that will weigh on their minds when they're making their decisions. But if they can get past that, well then, yeah. There might be no better free agent destination in basketball than Los Angeles. And I'm not talking about the Lakers. 
This series will be fun to watch because of how gritty the Clippers are, because everybody hates the Warriors at this point, unless you're a Warriors fan. People are rooting against them. And it'll be really interesting to see how both teams respond to that Game 2 victory for the Clippers. In Denver, Jamal Murray came up huge, huge, to save the Nuggets' season for at least one more night. Right, We've still got the series to play, and San Antonio still looks like the better team. They did in both games. But at least for one night, Jamal Murray's big-time fourth-quarter performance, 21 of his 24 points came in the fourth quarter. At 24, that's a good game. It's not a great game. But 21 in the fourth, I was talking about Lou Will being good in the fourth. He had 12. Jamal Murray had 21 in the fourth. Led the Nuggets back from a 19-point deficit. Series is tied 1-1 instead of being in an 0-2 series hole and then traveling to San Antonio on top of that. That series has been really fun to watch from a basketball standpoint if you're a fan of the game and coaching and offense and just seeing teams work within a system that's tactical and intelligent and smart. It's really fun to watch, right? Plus, you've got guys who are playing for these teams like Jokic who just play the game in a special way. It's a mesmerizing way because he's so versatile. He can do whatever he wants. If you double him, he'll pass, and he's one of the best passers in the league. If you don't, he's going to body you. Right? He's not that athletic, but him carrying around a little extra chunk certainly means he's powerful when he moves into your body. He's got touch. And then for San Antonio, DeMar DeRozan, special NBA player, all-star. He's not in Toronto, so he's not on the one seed right now. He's on the seven-seed Spurs, obviously. A little bit of the excitement factor has dropped off, but he's playing for Greg Popovich. Him and LaMarcus Aldridge playing for one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. A magician with the X's and O's. Their offense works like clockwork. It's beautiful. If you like basketball, you should watch this series. Not the most exciting, but it might be the most beautiful. If you want excitement, if it's exciting basketball that you're looking for, then maybe you want to watch Thunder Blazers. Talk about star power. CJ, Dame, Westbrook, Paul George. It's really exciting. Big hitters. Playmakers. Superstars. That's the story of that of that series. But the other story is that everybody's somehow surprised that the Thunder lost the first two games of that series. Portland leads 2-0. Series moves to Oklahoma City. The three seed leads the six seed 2-0 after two home games for the three seed. What about that story is out of the ordinary? Am I missing something? The Thunder stink. They're awful. They have been for months. They were great. They were great for a short stretch of the midseason. They were good for most of the season. And then they've crumbled in the last three months. Why was anybody expecting anything other than exactly what they've shown us this year? And it's funny how we allow what we want to believe to totally influence just what we know to be true. The sixth seed is down 2-0 against the three seed. There's nothing shocking about that. And then all the while, we're writing off the five seed Jazz in their series against the four-seed Rockets. We're writing off the five-seed in the 5-4 series 
but we're shocked that the six seed can't beat the three on the road. Something's inconsistent there. No, nothing has even happened in the series. The Blazers protected home court. The series moves to OKC. It's 2-0. By the end of the week, we're going to be looking at 2-2, which wouldn't be shocking, or 3-1, or it could be over in a sweep, and none of those outcomes would be that surprising. All of those outcomes would be entirely reasonable for a 3-6 series. For these teams in particular. The three sweeps the six? Not that surprising. They win in five games? Not that surprising. They win in six games? Not that surprising. The six upsets the three? That's a nice upset, but not shocking. There's nothing surprising about the way this has gone, and everybody wants to paint a picture like the Thunder are somehow falling apart. They've been falling apart for three months. They fell apart and landed the sixth seed. If that isn't evidence of their falling apart, I don't know what is. There's no reason to be surprised, shocked, or even considering this series over already. None of that makes any sense. Right? Isn't that the point of a series two? You play seven games with the higher seed having that home court advantage, and other than that, it's even and you go until somebody wins four games. Well, I'm not saying that the Thunder are going to come back and win this series, but I would venture to guess that more times than not, more often than not, the higher seed does lead 2-0 going into the lower seed's territory. It's nothing surprising. I just don't understand where all this shock is coming from. I saw this coming from a mile away. Where is the surprise? Vegas had, now Vegas did, they had the Thunder favorite in the series. Vegas is the only outlet, the only source of information that indicated in any way Oklahoma City should be expected to win this series or get off to a hot start in this series. Vegas told us one thing, and all the, ev- all the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence from every other part of the season said otherwise. And we're shocked. I don't get it. But those expectations aside, we are at a point where... You just have to address the elephant in the room for the Thunder, and that's Russell Westbrook. In this series, right, whether or not we expected them to win these games or not, he's 13 of 37 from the field and 1 of 10 from 3. That's 35% from the field and 10% shooting from 3. Not bad, but atrocious. Unacceptable unwinnable. You can't win playing like that. Not if you're taking 19 shots a game. Yeah, if your eighth man takes two shots and those are his numbers, fine. But if your MVP does it, your centerpiece, that can't happen. So it's time to ask, what is Westbrook's value? We know he's good. No one's out here saying he's bad. But what's his actual value? How do, you de- how do you determine how valuable Russell Westbrook is? Well, the answer is pretty simple. His value was 45 wins, or thereabouts. Russell Westbrook is a superstar, there's no question about it. But he's also in this interesting, small class of those superstars who pretty much guarantee an upgrade for a bad team, and then they hold you back from going further as long as they're your centerpiece. So if you're building around these guys... 
you're guaranteed an upgrade from where you were before you had them or from where you were if you didn't have them, where you would be. Right? The Thunder without Russell Westbrook before they signed Paul George two years ago, but that first season without Durant when Westbrook was the MVP, they would have been awful without him. 45 wins. But you can now add whatever pieces you want around that guy, and we saw it with Durant. He's kind of going to hold you back from going further. Right? The other guys in that category... DeMar DeRozan, John Wall, Jimmy Butler. Their value is a little different. Not everyone's 45 wins. But the sentiment is the same. They're all guys who can take over a possession, a quarter, a game, even a month. But not a season. Not if you include the postseason. Right? Westbrook did has pretty much taken over three seasons, averaging a triple-double for three years in a row. But he hasn't been able to take over the playoffs at all. He hasn't been able to take over a series. He's just not been able to do it. And each has their own reason. Each has their own shortcomings for for this player flaw and the fact that they cannot sustain this success into the postseason. But for Westbrook, it pretty much just comes down to his sporadicness. And there's nothing more to it. What it's it's what allows him, listen, it's taking the good with the bad. It's what allows him to impose himself. His sporadicness is what allows him to impose himself on defenses, right? It's his unpredictability factor. It keeps defenses on their heels, but it also keeps his own teammates on their heels. It means he makes bad choices at times. And then it also means that sometimes those questionable decisions pay off. It's maybe the most identifiable situation of taking the bad with the good in any major sport for any player. And then you just ask yourself, what's your philosophy? Do you take it? Each person might have a different answer, but the Thunder, their front office, answered it already, and they signed him to a five-year, $206 million extension in 2017. That was their answer. They committed to Westbrook. They committed to his shortcomings and his strengths. This is who the Thunder are, and this should not be a surprise. That's what I'm getting at here. Nothing about this is shocking. They've proven this as their identity time and time again, and yet we keep wanting to disagree with what we see right in front of us. We just want to believe something that all the evidence tells us isn't true. The Oklahoma City Thunder have already answered this question. They'll take the bad with the good. We're going to go to break, and in a few minutes we'll be back to talk about Russell Wilson and his new contract with the Seattle Seahawks. Keep it here. You're listening to Tab's Takes on WERW. And we're back. You're listening to Tab's Takes on WERW. I'm your host, Ryan Tab, as always. And I said before the break, when we came back, we were going to talk about Russell Wilson and his new contract with the Seattle Seahawks, which makes him the highest paid player in football. Period. That's it. Nobody makes more money playing that game than Russell Wilson. He agreed to terms with the Seahawks on a $140 million contract. The deal includes $65 million in a signing bonus, and it'll keep him in Seattle through 2023. Wilson had apparently set Monday, April 15th as a deadline for himself just a couple of months ago, although that was not public until recently, and the negotiations took every minute of the time he had allotted. His agent was in Seattle for three days meeting with the team until they reached a conclusion, technically, Early in the morning on the 16th, but we'll let it slide. It was a self-imposed limit anyway, that 15th deadline. 
So what do you get when you sign Russell Wilson? What did the Seahawks just pay for? Because you have to ask yourself, if you're going to pay a guy and make him the highest played payer, the highest paid player to ever play this sport, what's the value? Is he worth it? And if he is worth it, well, what are you getting for it? What do you get when you sign Russell Wilson? So the Seahawks believe him to be the most valuable asset in football. For starters, that asset is a quarterback, right? I mean that in the sense that Russell Wilson has never missed a start in his NFL career. Sometimes you sign a player, you sign a guy who plays quarterback, but he doesn't actually play quarterback. That's his job, but does he do it? Is he injured all the time? You get a real quarterback with Russell Wilson. He has never missed a start in his NFL career. I'm repeating that because that's insane. That is a statistic that few, if any, quarterbacks active in the league can say besides him. Durability is huge in the NFL. It's half the value. If you're going to pay for a guy, you want him to play. You don't want to pay for a guy to watch from his hotel room because he's injured or from his home because he's injured for the season, whatever the case may be. You need a guy who's durable. And then it's impressive for anyone, right? But especially a guy who runs so much, who's so active outside of the pocket, and he's not big. That's all impressive. Here's where he gets really impressive. Russell Wilson is third in the league in air yards per attempt, which, by the way, is far more telling than yards per attempt, right? Because yards per attempt, if I'm a quarterback and I throw a screen pass and it goes one yard in the air, just in front of the line of scrimmage, and then my receiver gets a couple nice blocks, makes a move, next thing you know it's a first down, 15-yard gain. Well, that goes down as a 15-yard attempt for me. Not indicative at all of me as a quarterback. And if I throw that same pass and he's tackled immediately, goes down as a one-yard attempt. If I throw the ball 40 yards and it's incomplete, that's no yards. So it's not exactly a telling statistic if you're just looking at basic yards per attempt. But air yards per attempt, which is the nice thing about all the technology that is being incorporated into all the major sports leagues, is that you get these advanced, they're not even statistics, just, I mean, they are basic statistics in the sense that they're giving you numbers that quantify what you're seeing out there, right? Any, any number that's representative of something physical is a statistic in that sense, but right where you're taking averages and all that good stuff. It is a statistic in that sense, but it's not an advanced metric. It's just an advanced way of finding more accurate statistics. So air yards per attempt is telling you how far the ball is traveling in the air when Russell Wilson attempts a pass, which is really more indicative of what he's doing with the ball. So like I said, we make this headway in statistical areas all the time as far as finding ways to assign number values and just quantify success in accurate ways. And then we consistently rely on bad stats. So I really hate when people talk about yards per attempt, especially when we have more specific metrics like air yards right in front of us. We should never consider stats like standard yards per attempt. Why? ESPN doesn't even go away from the standard box score of using yards per attempt. I don't really know. It's, I mean, it's not just ESPN. Any outlet that has a box score, there's no reason to use it anymore. We just have an upgraded version of the stat available. And even people who are not fans of advanced metrics, which is a mindset I can never understand, because they're just an assisted way of explaining what we can see. But if somebody says, if somebody tells you that that they'll just check with their eye test or they've seen him play, they don't need to know the stats, that person's ignorant, bottom line. Ignorant. That's saying that you truly believe 
You're intelligent enough to take in all the variables and reach a conclusion with no assistance. None of us are. There's not a person on earth who's capable of that. Now, some are better at it than others. But it'd be like saying you don't use computers and calculators because you're just too smart. There's nothing wrong with using systems that are built to assist in a certain area that's very complex. There's nothing wrong with using them to help you out. Now, you don't have to swear by every number. You don't have to say, well, obviously, if he excels in quarterback rating, he must be the best quarterback in the league. Like You can disagree with the premise that a statistic might imply, but statistics don't tell stories. They're just facts. And then it's your job as a football mind to gather those facts and reach your own conclusions. But anybody who rejects a series of facts because they just don't like the way it's done or they're opposed to change or they just think they're too smart for them, well, that's just ignorant and you can't trust what they're telling you. Quite frankly, you cannot trust somebody who's doing analysis and ignoring certain facts because they don't like them. Take them into account, disregard them, that's fine. But ignoring them, well... That's just poor analysis. So why we even consider standard yards per attempt, these kinds of things, when we have air yards per attempt readily available, right? Some statistics are very hard to come by. Some of them are paid by exclusive services to get. It's not that simple, but air yards per attempt is just given to you. The NFL's website has that. It's a way better number. I don't know why standard box scores don't use it. That said, Wilson sits behind Jameis Winston and Ryan Fitzpatrick in air yards per attempt for 2018. He's third in the league. As I mentioned, air yards per attempt, third in the league behind Jameis Winston and Ryan Fitzpatrick. The average passer rating for the nine quarterbacks in the top 10 of that category, the nine who are not named Russell Wilson, their average passer rating is 94. Right? And it makes sense. Passer ratings, generally speaking, is going to, your passer ratings, generally speaking, going to drop if you're throwing the ball further downfield. There's higher risk in those throws, smaller margin for error. It's a more difficult throw. Understandably, your pass rating drops. So the average for the nine quarterbacks in the top 10 who are not Russell Wilson, 94. Russell Wilson, 110.9. Blows him out of the water. Pat Mahomes was also 113. But he's ninth on that list. He's not third. So of the two guys who really excel and stand out, it's Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes, at least in that regard. He essentially has high value by moving the ball downfield. With exceptional precision, he limits turnovers and is consistently healthy. It's pretty easy to see why the Seahawks think he is the most valuable asset in the NFL. Name me one other quarterback who can give you that for years at a time. right? Everybody loves to point at Mahomes, and I love Patrick Mahomes. He's going to be a star. Well, he already is a star, but he's going to be a star for years to come in the NFL. He's just getting started. So you need to pump the brakes a little bit and say, oh, I'm getting on this train, but you don't forget about everything else that's going on in the NFL. Guys who've done it for years. Aaron Rodgers, most people can agree, is the most talented quarterback in football. But he doesn't play. He's injured all the time. Injured all the time. And it's not always his fault. Right? He plays behind an awful offensive line. He's asked to do a lot. But that's not to say Russell Wilson isn't asked to do a lot. The, Se the Seahawks had a bad offensive line for quite some time, although they righted the ship this past season, midway through the year. But nobody 
besides Patrick Mahomes and Russell Wilson, has been able to put up these kinds of statistics and the circumstances they're put in all while staying healthy. And Mahomes has done it for so short, it's hard to say that that durability is, is an asset of his. Just because the history is not there for him. He does it for three more years, well, you can start talking like that. And, oh, by the way, Mahomes plays in a much more exciting offense, a much more creative offense, a much more quarterback-oriented offense with much more talent around him. Russell Wilson, quite frankly, is doing it with a bunch of nobodies in an uncreative offense that's dead last in the league in pass attempts per game. They're a run-centric offense, partly because they have no assets on the offensive side of the ball besides Wilson. Their receiving core is fairly weak. Their running game has been in rotation for three years. And he's still able to do these things. I fully understand and agree with the Seahawks' decision to eventually cough up the money late in these negotiations and make Russell Wilson the highest-paid player in football. He deserves every penny of it. Doesn't mean he's the best quarterback in football, but I don't think there's anybody else who can offer you what he offers you. A high level of play, high ceiling, consistently playing, consistently healthy, doesn't turn the ball over, and oh, by the way, he's a veteran who's seen it all. It makes sense, right? The Seahawks made a commitment with this financial statement, they made a commitment to improving instead of rebuilding, and that's the right choice, obviously. This is a team that's had a winning record every year since 2012. Now, some years they've been great, some years they've been good, but they've had a winning record every year since 2012. That's not the time to say, oh, our quarterback wants too much money, we're just going to go and do a full rebuild by letting him walk. No, you continue to improve. Their offensive line remains strong. As I said, they righted that ship, even though it was very wrong. But midway through last season, they righted that ship. They continue to be a run-first team, which means Wilson will rely on a balanced attack. And if they made this commitment financially to him, I'd be surprised if they didn't go out and make other financial commitments to improving the team. Seems like a waste of spending $140 million if all of a sudden you're going to go and get cheap in the rest of the offseason. They do need to bolster that receiving core. They've been active on the free agent market thus far. And that reaffirms that commitment I'm talking about to improving rather than rebuilding. Russell Wilson is exactly the kind of guy who should be the highest paid player in the NFL. Oh, he's not a head case either. He's a stand-up guy. He's a great quarterback. He's been loyal to the team. Fans love him. But it's the talent, really, that trumps everything, and he's got that going for him, too. Now, if you're having me rank my best quarterbacks in football, I don't know that Russell Wilson's at the top of the list, purely based on talent, although it's evident that he would certainly be potentially in that spot. All right, you'd be hard-pressed to leave him out of that kind of conversation. But what value, and this is what I'm saying with a guy like Aaron Rodgers, I love Aaron Rodgers. There's no question that he might be the most talented arm football's ever seen. But what is the value of a guy like that if he can't play? What is the value of a great arm with a broken collarbone on the bench? What is the value there? Would you rather have a top five quarterback who plays every game or the number one quarterback who misses half the season? I think the answer is pretty clear at this point. So, if Patrick Mahomes can stay healthy, well then there's no reason at all that he doesn't immediately seize the title of best quarterback in the league. He's already one of the most talented 
We'll see if year two brings changes for him. And technically, it'll be year three, but four games in his rookie season at the end of the year doesn't quite count as a full year under his belt. So year two for Patrick Mahomes, we'll see if it brings change. We'll see if he can really take that next step and convince people that it's not an issue of youth and that he truly is just one of the best quarterbacks in football. But he played like it this year. Right, we're talking about essentially a rookie should have won MVP. A rookie. And it was a close race. Right? It came down to it. It wasn't clear cut and dry, although I believe it should have been. A lot of people had Drew Brees as their MVP. That's a product of, once again, believing what you want to believe, not believing based off of the evidence in front of you. I digress. All I'm saying, all I'm saying, is that Patrick Mahomes and Russell Wilson probably be the two most valuable quarterbacks in football right now. Mahomes did win that MVP. Breeze didn't. Like I said, that's the right choice. Should have been a rookie MVP. Unfortunately, he didn't get that. Which is the same thing. It's like the opposite of the Ben Simmons situation, right? We look at Ben Simmons and we're like, here's a guy who got rookie of the year, his second season in the league. When really for the first season he wasn't really playing and he was just working with trainers. I guess it might be a little hypocritical of me to believe that Mahomes should have been considered a rookie and Simmons shouldn't have been, but I think the biggest difference is just in their sport. In the NBA, there is great value in training with a professional staff as opposed to being a college football player. There's great value in training... Or sorry, excuse me, a college basketball player. There's great value in training against NBA bodies. And you can come in and have an immediate impact your rookie year. The NFL is much more mental. You have to have seen it. You have to adjust to the play style. So you can train with a team for a year all you want, and you will improve, no question about it. But the real steps come in when you really get in the game and start progressing in that regard. So maybe it's hypocritical. Maybe I found a way to justify it. But in my mind, that MVP Mahomes won should have been a rookie MVP to just make it all that much more impressive. And well, you already know my stance is that Ben Simmons should have never been considered a rookie his second season in the league, but it is what it is. We're going to take another break now that we've discussed the value of Russell Wilson and how he deserves every penny and Mahomes might be the next guy up. We're going to take another break. When we get back, NFL draft talk, it's heating up. It's getting to be that time of the year. You can see a lot of Mel Kuyper around on your TV, a lot of big boards, a lot of draft boards, mock drafts. Every year, the most interesting part of the draft First pick, who's it going to be? This year, particularly interesting. I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to tell you what the Cardinals should do with that pick. When we get back to Tabs Takes on WERW, stick with us for the break. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Tabs Takes on WERW. I'm your host, Ryan Tab, as always, and the NFL draft is approaching. I mentioned it before the break. It's getting to be that time of the year. You're going to see a lot of those guys, those draft analysts, those experts who are going to come on. And I think their analysis of the strengths and weaknesses of certain players and the needs of teams are absolutely great and useful, but mock drafts irrelevant because nobody knows what these teams are going to do on draft day. Half the teams don't even know what they're going to do on draft day. So trying to predict a multi-round draft in which moves are happening the whole time is a waste of your time. It's a waste of your time to watch. It's a waste of their time to do. I understand it's entertaining, but I don't think it adds any real value to understanding the league or what's going on in the draft. 
But the player analysis and team needs and fits like that, that is valuable information. And as I mentioned before the break, the most important, most interesting pick of every season, the first overall pick, that's it. Everyone wants to know who's going first overall. Because the team at the top is at the effect of nobody but themselves to make that pick. They have total control over who they take. There's not an issue of best available. It's just your first, the first guy on your draft board. Whoever you're highest on as a franchise, take him. That's it. It's that simple. So, the Arizona Cardinals have the first overall pick, and they have a decision to make. Do they trade last year's 10th overall pick and their young quarterback, Josh Rosen? Do they trade him and then take Kyler Murray, quarterback from Oklahoma, with the first pick of the draft? Do they do that, or do they stick with their guy from last year and use their picks to build? So they can either trade Rosen from, and then take Murray with the first pick, or they can stick with their guy, Rosen, and then just use that that first pick and their later picks to build and bolster the roster around him because part of the issue last year is just that team's awful and Rosen had nothing to work with. They had a horrible offensive line and no ground game, and Rosen's a pocket passer who needs his feet set. That's not really a recipe for success. In fact, it's a recipe for disaster. For a while, I have been on the record as having said no, the Arizona Cardinals should not trade Josh Rosen. They should not draft Kyler Murray, and they should let their player develop. They drafted him for a reason. Don't make the trade. Hold on to Rosen. But now, I believe the alternative. I believe the opposite. When they drafted Rosen 10th overall, they were at the effect of nine teams in front of them. When they drafted Rosen 10th overall, they needed a quarterback and they got the best one on the board. None of that matters now. They have an opportunity to do exactly what they want to do. And the Cardinals have taken a risk on Cliff Kingsbury, a college coach with a losing record. Historically, he has a losing record for his career. Not like in one season. I mean, he's lost more games than he's won in college and he got promoted to the NFL as a head coach with no assistant experience in the modern NFL. A losing record, but consistently high-powered offenses. And he's a guy who's identified and then coached some of the best hidden gems in recent college football history. You're talking about Patrick Mahomes and Baker Mayfield. Mahomes, who I praised before the break in our last segment. And then Mayfield, obviously, who's a budding star in the NFL and has turned around the Browns franchise immediately. Those are hidden gems that he identified. He gave them opportunities at Texas Tech. And then he coached him. Kyler Murray is perfect for him. Perfect. And I rarely use that word. We rarely in life, as people, as, as teams in this circumstance, but any organization or person rarely gets the opportunity to do things perfectly, right? You strive for that, and you always end up settling for somewhere slightly less ideal. But that's you strive for perfection. No, the Cardinals really have a chance to do it perfect. This is a moment where the stars have aligned for them, and to waste an opportunity on a sunken cost fallacy situation with Rosen, that would be something that I think they would regret for years to come. Oh, we took him last year. We have to commit to him. No, you took him last year. This year's this year. If you have an opportunity to hit a grand slam, you can't be thinking about your last, your last at bat. All right, so I say this is one of the rare win-win situations in sports for trades. Right, Some team, if they trade for Rosen, is going to get a really talented young prospect. They're going to get him at a good value because he struggled last year in a bad situation, but we all know he's talented. And then ideally, you're talking about a team that wouldn't get the opportunity last year to pick him because they didn't struggle so much that they got a top 10 pick. So it's a better team. It's an upgrade for Rosen. It's a team that's got talent and just needs a quarterback. 
They need a new man under center. They go get their guy. Rosen's in a great situation. The Cardinals get picks in return, or players, either or. But either way, it's something that helps them build a better situation to bring Kyler Murray into where he can fit perfectly with their new head coach. That's a win-win-win, actually, because it's a win for Rosen, too. Like I said, he'll ideally be in a better situation. What's not to like? The Cardinals has set a precedent of risk by hiring Cliff Kingsbury. So don't try and start mitigating it now. That's how you become mediocre. By saying we're going to take a risk on Cliff Kingsbury, we want him to run his offense, we want him to have the ideal players, and then say, well, we're not going to take a risk on Kyler Murray. Do it. Do it right. Right, so the key, at least, for them to be successful for the Cardinals, assuming that they do go through with this trade, and I think it looks fairly likely at this point that they would make some trade, reassign Josh Rosen to another team, and draft Kyler Murray. The key here for their success is not really Murray. Obviously, like developing developing him is going to be a big deal, but he's a special and I believe generational talent. I think there are cause causes for concern, reasonable questions to be asked about his size about his play style. But here we are asking those same questions, not size, but play style and coaching style for Cliff Kingsbury. Pair them together. Set the league on fire. That's what the Cardinals have an opportunity to do with Kyler Murray. So he will need, Kingsbury that is, he will need some veteran NFL leadership uh, just to ease the transition from college to the pros, right? We're talking about guys who can assist with understanding just the ins and outs of the league, that day-to-day know-how that you don't get until you've been a part of something for years, and then the nuances of the game as they change from college to the pros. Uh, Time will tell, but I really think the Cardinals would regret in the long term not trading Josh Rosen away and drafting Kyler Murray instead. That's all the time we've got today on Tabs Takes. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Tabs Takes on WERW Radio. We'll see you next Wednesday.